Church, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Luke. Continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke, uh, we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17 this morning. Luke 9, verses 10 to 17. And with God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of his word. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, Twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is a a seminal event in the ministry of Christ. It's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, recorded in all four Gospels. That alone gives you an indication of its significance. It's significant just in terms of its magnitude and scale, the sheer number of people that witnessed it and were affected by it. It is significant in terms of the place we find it in the broader biblical text, in that it is sandwiched right between Herod's question we looked at last week, who is this about whom I hear such things? And Jesus' own question, who do the crowds say that I am? And eventually, as you may be aware, that is uh, personalized down to an individual level. Who do you say that I am? After all that you have witnessed, after all that you have observed, after all of the teaching that you've listened to me deliver, what conclusions have you come to in your heart and mind about my person and my identity and my purpose in the world? And Lord willing, we'll look more closely at that piercing question next week and the implications of uh, Peter's confession where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, before we get there, We come to our passage today, which really picks up on where the text leaves off in verses 1 to 6, 
we saw there the, the commissioning of the 12 apostles last week, the way the Lord Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They went out as ambassadors for Christ. Well, now they're back. They're back from that mission trip. They're back from this evangelistic campaign. And they are excited. Uh, They're excited to tell Jesus about all that uh, has happened, all that his power and authority working through them has accomplished for the sake of his name. So they're they're excited, but they're also tired. Uh, They're worn out. Ministry is tiring. Serving the Lord is tiring work even when you're serving in the, the strength of his might, it is, it is tiring. There's no, it's no accident that a man like the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul talks about the, the, the work of the ministry in terms of being spent uh, for souls. It's no accident that the Lord often likens the work of ministry um, and understand that I'm not talking about just apostles and pastors and the like, but the work of ministry that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians that belongs to all of the church, that the Lord Jesus likens that to putting your hand to the plow, uh, laboring in, in the harvest fields. So the disciples are spent. And Jesus understands that, and he's so gracious in his dealings with them. God has created us to to rest, not to always be burning the candle at, at both ends, as if everything that's happening in our lives is dependent on us. That is not how the Lord would have us function. In fact, that's a, a sign of uh, self-centeredness and faithlessness when we refuse the gift of rest that God has given to us. So Jesus uh, determines that this is an opportune time to go on a little bit of a leadership retreat with his disciples so that they can be replenished and refreshed. And he tells them, well, let's draw away and rest for a little while. And so off they go. They go off to Bethsaida. This would have been on the northern shore of the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus takes his disciples and they withdraw. They're back on the boat. Uh, but you can see here in the text what happens almost immediately. The crowds discover it. The crowds learn what's happening and they follow him. The crowds learned it and they follow him. Mark tells us that some of them, uh, upon recognizing that it was him, ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. So you, you, you can picture this in your mind. You can imagine the kind of ruckus. Uh, you, you think you're going to have this uh, peaceful time of R&R and you get across the, the, the Sea of Galilee, and what do you find? It's like spring break at Disney World. There are thousands and thousands of people there, and it's not at all what you were hoping for or imagining. The retreat has been called off. It's been canceled. But notice here, the heart of Christ in the midst of all of this, brothers and sisters, 
The disciples, as we move through this text, we see that the disciples treat the crowds as an intrusion. Uh, This was a great inconvenience to them. This wasn't in their plans. It wasn't something that was on their uh, agendas. They are on the heels of their very first uh, ministry expedition. As I said, they're worn out. This is the last thing they're looking for. But what does Jesus do? He welcomes them. He welcomes the crowd. He does not chasten them. He does not rebuke them. Christ looks out across this vast uh, company of souls and he is mindful of their need. He is mindful of their lost estate. He sees their their desperate need. In fact, he, he sees it better than they see it. Uh, themselves, and he welcomes them. He welcomes them into his company at the most inopportune time. The Lord Jesus says, welcome. He says, welcome. You may come to me. And, and friends, Jesus is unchanging. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. He is evermore the same to us. He is still saying, come to me, all ye who labor and are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is always saying, come to me, to those who have need of him, and come to him. You see the hospitality of Christ written all over this. We have an accessible Savior. The Lord doesn't have office hours uh, posted on his throne. So you have this pattern underscored again. This man receives and welcomes sinners. Thanks be to God. Aren't you glad that you have a Savior who receives sinners? who has welcomed you into his presence. And so the multitudes come, and they come uh, bringing all of their need, just as we've sung this morning, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And what do they discover? Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Christ isn't put off by them. The Bible says that um, when he goes ashore, he sees this great throng that is waiting there for them, for him, and he, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He 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 looks out at this morass and he sees uh, beyond the externals. He sees their their spiritual waywardness, uh, their spiritual estate. He sees their, their lack of care and provision, their, their defenselessness, their need. And each of the gospel writers, as, as they, they, they record this episode, they, they, they draw to light the fact that something more here is going on than just the distribution of a single meal given to stave off temporal hunger. 
There is something more here being depicted than the problem of physical hunger pangs. We see that here right at the very beginning in the fact that before Jesus ever gets to the feeding of the 5,000, he does something even more significant, speaking from an eternal perspective. What does he do? He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. He, he sheds light on his messiahship, on his glory, on his reign. He ministers the good news of the gospel. He tells of his power to save. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so while he is certainly attending to their, their temporal, uh, physical needs, he does not leave their deepest, most profound spiritual needs unattended to. Reconciliation to the Lord, the forgiveness of sins, faith, in his name. This is something we need to, to think about and to, to emphasize whenever we think about mercy ministry. To remember that there is a difference between giving a cup of cold water to, to someone and giving a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name. There is a difference, friends, in those two affairs. There's a difference between ministering to temporal needs and doing so in a way that is an extension of that life-giving knowledge of Christ, the knowledge that desires first and foremost to see men bow in grateful, a humble submission to Christ the King and to see those lost sheep brought into the fold of the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. What good ultimately speaking, is philanthropy that has no concern for the eternal welfare of the souls of men. Jesus spoke to them of this. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he healed them. He didn't leave them as they were. He cured those who had need of healing. So you have the crush of the crowds and you have the heart of Christ so vividly displayed. And I just want to add here, uh, by way of encouragement to us, that we are to take our cues in our dealings with the lost and the needy, and that includes one another, from the Lord Jesus, and not from the apostles here. This is a challenge to us, I think, when it comes to uh, our dealings with weak and needy souls, to be the kind of compassionate, entreating, welcoming, hospitable faces that reflect faithfully, accurately, the image of our Savior, especially with the lost. We don't turn away. We don't turn our faces in dis disgust. We, we don't treat the souls of men and their state of need is an intrusion or an inconvenience to our lives. Remember what Christ remembers. Remember they're hungry, they're needy, they're poor, they're sheep without a shepherd. Look at them with Christ's eyes. Look at their spiritual needs. So when the phone rings early in the morning or it is late at night, whenever it is, resist that, that inward groan uh, 
that says, oh no, not again. Ask for the compassion of Christ to love as you have first been loved when you were in that wretched, depraved, ugly, wayward state and Jesus wrapped you in his arms and brought you in. Love them as you have been loved. Now, that brings us to verse 12. After a long day of ministry, uh, Jesus teaches them all day long. The other gospel writers tell us, after this long day, the disciples decide they've had enough. The, the respite's been interrupted. They begin to think to themselves, well, how can we wrap things up here? How can we bring things to a conclusion? Look at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, that is to Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Notice here that the disciples have it in their minds just how Jesus should deal with the problem. And because you know already the end of the story, it's easy to see that they are looking at the situation with their natural eyes. They are surveying all that there is to see with what they can see with their physical, natural eyes. It's been a long day, dusk is approaching, and so they go to the Savior and they say, well, Lord, here's how to handle this. Get the, the brazenness of this in your minds, church. They give the Lord instructions. They tell him, here's what you need to do. And you see what's bound up in that last phrase of verse 12. We are here in a desolate place. There, there is nothing here by way of provision. There is nothing that can meet the need that we are facing. What I want you to notice is that in the place of faith and trust and prayer and expectation is resignation. Just, just cold resignation. They look around them, they, they survey their surroundings, they, they, they note the absence of provision, and in the very presence of the one who spoke creation into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, they say, Lord, there's nothing here. Sorry, uh, the pantry is empty. Where is the imagination of faith? Where is the expectation, uh, the hope, the anticipation that comes from one who has observed the miracles and the wonders and the mighty works of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is the heart that cries out to the Lord and says, God, I, I don't have the answer, but I know one thing, and that's that you can do all things. That, that, that you are Jehovah Jireh, the great provider, and I can trust you in, your, in, in my need. So come and show yourself strong in the face of this absence of provision, in the face of uh, my need and want. Come and make yourself known. 
You don't see that. You see resignation. You see presumption, the kind of presumption that goes so far as to tell the Lord, who's done so many things on their behalf, what to do. The sum total of their prayers, if you can even describe it that way, is relegated to what they can perceive with their natural eyes. Twelve men endowed with power and authority from on high are functioning like secularists in a company boardroom saying, how are we going to handle this problem? Let's send the crowd away. Let them go into the villages. They can find lodging and provision there. So this is a very sad scene. It's a very sad scene, uh, not just in terms of the need that is present in the crowd, but the way the apostles render their assessment of the situation and formulate their approach to it. And yet I think it's one in which we can all see ourselves. I think it's easy to see how we, we often find ourselves confronted with seemingly impossible situations and our gut level instinct is not to say, Lord, what are you going to do now? How might you show yourself strong? No, our reaction is to see how we might work things out with the resources we have at our disposal. We don't spread out the situation before the Lord and say, God, what would you have us to do? We don't have the answer, but we have our God. We know you, so magnify your name. No, we fail to pray. We fail to rehearse the faithfulness of God. We find ourselves slipping into the same old patterns of despair and man-centered thinking, self-reliant ways. Well, the disciples are right about one thing, which is that they are in a desolate place. Of course, Christ is going to address that problem. He's going to meet that need, and he's going to perform a miracle, the likes of which uh, they have never witnessed before, something on a scale they could never imagine. Now, they have seen probably thousands of miracles by this point. They have seen the Lord cast out many, many demons. They have seen the Lord heal many, many individuals. But here you have this tremendous number of people, 5,000 men strong. That is besides women and children So conservatively speaking, you could easily be looking at 15,000, 20, 25,000 people there standing before the Lord Jesus. How is Christ going to meet that need? If you look at verse 13 in your Bible, Jesus turns to them, to the disciples, and he says, you give them something to eat. (laughs) What? You give them something to eat? Now, forget that you already know the rest of the story. What would you have said if the Lord Jesus had given those directions to you? I suspect that we all would have said something like what the disciples say to him. 
What do they say? We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. They had found one little boy who had had some lunch with them, with him. Uh, beyond, but beyond that, what are they going to do? Go into town and try to buy food for all of these people? I suspect that that comment is laced with at least a little bit of sarcasm, some, some amount of incredulity at the, at the, at the very least. Um, they are, if you remember, they were sent out on that, that missions trip without any money. They didn't have anything to their names. They were told not to collect anything. Take no money bag with you. And now they come and the Lord Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Mark says that it would have cost about 200 denarii. That is about seven months worth of wages, worth of bread to feed them all. So you see how how this all echoes what we've already seen in the verse that precedes this, that the disciples are still operating according to what they can see, according to what they can envision with their their natural eyes. They're walking by faith, or by sight. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy for all of these, uh, these people. So the disciples are baffled. Now, what I want to... Uh, present to you and, and ask you to, to wrestle through with me is why did Jesus do this? Why did he direct them in such a way? What is Christ doing? Jesus knows that on the face of things, these are impossible orders. Jesus knows that this is something they cannot accomplish in themselves, what he's asked them to do. So what is he doing when he says, you give them something to eat? Well, he is bringing them face to face with their own want, with their own deficiencies. He is forcing them to reckon with their own inability to meet the needs of the ones that he has sent them to minister to. The word you in those instructions there is in the emphatic position. You give them something to eat. That's purposeful. He is making them uh, stare themselves in the mirror, spiritually speaking, so they can see clearly their emptiness and their weakness and their inadequacies. One author, David Gooding, says this, if he had told them to feed the crowd, it ought to at least have startled them into thinking that there might be more to the kingdom of God and the powers of Jesus Christ than they had yet realized. Instead of that, the highest their thoughts could rise to was the possibility of going to the nearest merchants, wholesalers, of course, and buying the necessary quantity of food. Now let me ask you this, friends. How often has the Lord Jesus Christ set before you impossible orders? Things that are impossible for you to achieve in your own strength, in your own might. I trust that if you're in the word, if you are reading the scriptures, that with every turn of the page, 
you're discovering things that would fall under that category. Take up your cross and follow me. Come alongside this neighbor in their weakness and suffering and affliction and minister to them. Minister my love to this person in their loss and in their grief. Raise these children for the glory of God. Share the gospel with this person who is at the absolute end of their rope. Each one who has received a gift, let him use it. The first step of obedience to the commands of Christ is coming to grips with the impossibility of those commands apart from the working of his grace. We need his grace in our lives. Find an imperative in the scriptures and try to keep it on your own and see how miserably you fail. Ask me how I know. Jesus uses the weak and the inadequate, people who have nothing of their own to offer but who consciously, dependently look to him for their empowerment, for their strength and supply. The question the disciples failed to ask, the question that we need to ask ourselves every day in view of his call to follow him, to take up our cross, to be channels of mercy, is where is our faith? Are we consciously, uh, deeply, profoundly relying upon his grace, depending upon him? Have we learned of Christ, that he is the faithful one? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Remember that these are men who started out that journey with these words, take nothing. Take nothing, not even bread. Had they ever found themselves lacking along the way? Had God ever failed to provide them with their needs? Or you go even further back when they first met Jesus of Nazareth and uh, Simon Peter was out on that boat. James and John, they're uh, disappointed after their night's catch. Put out into the deep, let down your nets. They enclose this large number of fish. You can go even further back. You think about Israel's uh, wilderness wanderings in the desert and the way the Lord pours out manna and quail over and over and over again. God's faithfulness, day after day. What might a faith-filled response have looked like in that moment Christ came to his disciples? Lord, we hear your voice. We see the work that you have called us to do. We also confess our inadequacy to carry that out apart from your help. So how do you want us to proceed? We, we don't know what the next step forward is. We know this much. We know that we're going to look to you for the resources. We know that you will provide. And I trust that there are many needs in your own life where you can appropriate that principle, where that principle can be applied in your life, impossible situations, impossible orders, where, but where God stands ready to supply you 
with his grace, if you will only look to him, if you only depend on him. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't done uh, testing and challenging their faith in this episode. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now, what I want to simply impress upon your hearts here is, is this. At this point, the disciples still don't know how Jesus is going to meet this pressing need. But he sends them out anyway. He doesn't give them a master plan. He doesn't detail all of the steps. What does he do? He just says, here's the next thing. Here's the next step that you need to take. And that's often the way the work of the ministry goes. That's often what life in Christ looks like. You take the next step the Lord has called you to take. You do the next thing that he has set in front of you, knowing that as he has been faithful before, he's going to be faithful to you Again, he will continue to order your steps. And we see this here. The disciples go out. They organize the people just as Jesus had told them to. They trust him for the rest. And what does the Lord do? He blesses the work of their hands. He blesses the work of their hands as they go out in faith-filled obedience to him. Christ takes the five loaves and the two fish and he looks up to heaven He acknowledges the Father as the source of all good things, the source of this provision. He says a blessing over them. He he gives thanks for the provision that has been given, God's kindness. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and to set before the crowd. And what does the text tell us? And they all ate and we're satisfied. Now, a few things I want to call your attention to. First, that the Lord Jesus is where the provision is found. Jesus is where the provision is found. The disciples' hands were empty until Christ came and filled them. Jesus is the one multiplying the bread. He is the one acting as host, spreading the table, breaking the bread, welcoming the lost and the hungry. You you see the way that this is all prefiguring uh, the Last Supper. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So you see the provision of Christ You see, the sufficiency of Christ to meet our needs, they all ate. There was not a soul there left who went hungry. They all were fed and they were all filled. And it says that they were satisfied. There's one word that I want you to hear today. It's this, they all ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. It's the same word that Jesus used uh, back in Luke chapter six in the Sermon on the Plain where he says, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. It's what Mary 
uh, spoke of when she said, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Christ is the great soul satisfying savior of mankind. He is where true everlasting satisfaction is found. He himself is the bread given for us. And John, he declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, shall never hunger, shall never thirst. Now, there were many in the crowd here this day, and they didn't understand any of that. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They didn't understand what this was pointing to. They were concerned, as many are today in the world, only with temporal needs, only with temporary satisfaction. And we know that especially from the Gospel of John. It tells us there that the next day the crowd followed him, not because they hungered for Christ, but because they had had a good meal. Their bellies had been filled. And Jesus says there, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see the implication there of the word sign. You liked the food, but you completely missed the thing signified. The word sign is significant. The feeding of the 5,000 was uh, intended by the Lord to be a divine object lesson. It was a sign. Their hunger and thirst was a picture of a spiritual reality that points to the most uh, basic, profound need of the human condition. When Jesus called his disciples to distribute bread and fish to so many souls, he was pointing to a need. Not just to be physically fed, uh, but a need that we are all born with. It's a need that runs so much deeper than our need for physical bread, which is to be fed and nourished and sustained and satisfied with heavenly food that can supply spiritual life. The bread of heaven is what we need. Jesus is that bread of heaven. Jesus is the food that endures to eternal life. The Bible says if you eat of that bread, you will not die. You will not perish. It is a bread that will never go stale, It will never cease from nourishing. For all of eternity future, God will sustain you by that bread which came down from heaven. The bread that he gives for the life of the world, the Bible says, is his flesh. His flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. Now, how do you eat this bread? How do you eat this soul-satisfying bread. I can do no other than to repeat what Jesus said. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come, come to the Savior. Come to him. 
Receive the hospitality of Christ. Receive the welcome provided for by his finished work. Put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Believe in him as he himself has said. Be done with trying to feed yourself on that which is not bread, laboring for that which does not satisfy. Forsake, in other words, all of those other false breads, all of those things that malnourish uh, the the spiritual life, those things that that you've had before, those things over which the, the flesh constantly pines, but which is poisonous and ruinous bread. Feast on Christ. Feed on him the food that endures to eternal life. Repent of despising the manna that is provided for in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't show contempt for the heavenly food that was given in Christ as Israel showed contempt for the manna that was Rain down upon them in the wilderness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be satisfied in him. Hear what Psalm 107 and verse 9 says. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. I want you to notice, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have this kind of soul-satisfying relationship with Christ. You haven't received the, the forgiveness of your sins provided for through his shed blood upon the cross. You haven't believed in him. I want you to notice here that this bread that was given to the crowds was given without money. It was given without price. There was no preparation on their part required. There was no work required of them to perform. All they did was come as a beggar to the table and they were fed. They were nourished. They were satisfied. Feast upon the Son of God by faith, given as a sacrifice for sin. Feed on his flesh, drink of his blood, and he will raise you up. On the last day, the price has already been paid. He said, this is my body, which is for you. In him, there is plentiful provision. You notice here that the people were fed, and after uh, they, they were fed, uh, what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken food. There is no scanty provision in Christ He who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, what does he do? He pours out a superabundance upon those who come and beg of him. Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread. Jesus does exponentially more with far less. 12 apostles, 12 uh, baskets of leftovers as if Jesus is asking them, Are you going to trust me now? Are you going to trust me now? Do you see where the provision is found? Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Yes, he can. 
and he has in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name this day. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. I thank you, God, that we can feast on the abundance of your house and that you give us drink from the river of your delights. And there is such soul-satisfying, wonderful provision found in your Son. Thank you, Lord, for the glories of your gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ, that today, Lord, we can delight in things uh, into which angels long to look. What a remarkable thing. What wonderful things we have to praise you for. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Lord, we bless your name. God, I pray that all of our hope and joy and satisfaction would be found evermore in you and in your Son. God, I I pray uh, for all who have spent uh, their money on that which does not satisfy, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that you would work salvation in the hearts of men. Lord, where there are lost sheep, sheep without a shepherd, draw them into your fold. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and professed him in Uh, the waters of baptism, we invite you to partake of the Lord's table with us in just a moment. The ushers are going to distribute the elements. If you'll hold on to those until we have all received